Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Greetings, everyone, and happy Friday the 13th. Welcome to Back to Ashes. My name is Phoenix. Special thank you to the reform members of Back to Ashes. Denise S., Seven Leaf Clover, Through Scrutiny, Samantha Place, Stephanie McLaren, Corpse Lover, Mana Ash, Norman D.W., Christy Elias, and Patty's Niece. If you would like to become a member of Back to Ashes and want to check out my GoFundMe, all of that information is in the description below. If you are new here or haven't done so already, don't forget to subscribe, like, share, and comment. Not only does it push this video into the algorithm, it also will remind you of every time I upload a new story. With all of that being said, it is time to go back to ashes. For once we arise from the ashes, we are a bigger, brighter, stronger, and a happier person in the morning. Sit back, relax, kick back, grab your snacks, or snuggle in and get warm and prepare for this mega dose of vocal melatonin entitled Friday the 13th. Part 1. Right after this intro and ad will play, I'll read the first story and ad will play. I'll read the second story and ad will play. And there will be no more ads for the remainder of the video. Side note, for anyone that has not read my community tab, I will be reading horror stories that are fiction and I will be reading them in the raw. If you feel uncomfortable with vulgar language or anything of the sort, this will not be the video for you. This is the only time of year that I actually allow myself to come on to this channel and use every word the author has written, as it does help bring the story to life. So if that is not your thing, I would go ahead and click away now. Everybody else, listing discretion is advised. The Darkness of the Lonely Mine Please let me introduce myself. I am Leonardo D. It's not my true name, but it will do for now. I would like to tell you about living in a very dark world of mental health issues, suffering from sexual and physical abuse by my father, which led to a drug addiction. Let's start the story. I was born in the early 60s to a French mother who was a pagan white witch and a German father. His history will come out in the story. I was brought up in the Jewish quarters of Paris. I have been trying over the years to the reason why I suffered such violence, which was full of anger from my father. My mother was a small, petite, elegant, beautiful lady. She was a psychiatric nurse who worked in a lunatic asylum in Paris. Father worked in Paris for a German communication company developed from German technology and the Second World War. Now, let's begin the dark side of this story. My suffering along with the suffering of my mother at the hands of my father. 
For me, it started at the age of five. I was a small, petite child with long white hair and big blue eyes, the finest example of the true Aryan German. But I wasn't growing tall and strong like my father. He wanted me to be just like him and very muscular and tall, but I wasn't growing tall. My father was a part of the Nazi fascist group. He told me that I was an embarrassment to the German Aryan race. You should be growing up into a real Aryan race German and not a little retarded bastard like you. Or how can something like you be related to me? Then the beating started with such balance and brutality. And when he was finished beating me, he would rape me and I was just five years old. My mother tried to stop him, but he would turn around and start to beat and rape her as well. When you are a young child going through this and then watching your mother get beaten and raped by a huge colossus of a man, my father, he was seven feet tall and very, very muscular. I was too small and weak to stop him, but I tried my best to help my mother. But he would just pick me up by the head and throw me away like a bag of rubbish across the room. Martin Carl Gardner Alright dear listeners, the next stories are actually a series broken up into parts. I will read which part I'm reading before I start. Here we go. The Missing of Halloween, Part 1. This story comes from Celtic pagans with their beliefs from 1200 years ago. In the 12th century, the pagans made masks for the children to hide that they were children in the villages from the darkness of the evil spirits that came once a year. On the eve of the festival of Amhain, to celebrate on the 31st of October, the last day of the harvest before winter came. At the end of this day, when the darkness of night came so, would the winged demons for the youngsters. But upon this festival night, as the villages were enjoying themselves, they forgot that the demons were coming to harvest the youngsters. The villagers are at the heights of the festival and enjoying eating, drinking, dancing, and laughing in each other's company, and watching the children play. The adults were looking forward to the wild boar roasting over the fire and drinking far too much mead. They had been working hard all through the summer and maintaining the crops in the fields. So now they were enjoying the fruits of their labor so much that they are not watching the night skies for what is about to come. And that this Lilith, the mother of all demons, is looking for children to take and turn into her demon children. The villages are enjoying the festival and drinking and getting drunk on mead. Then one man looks up and notices the winged demand hovering and watching the children and starts shouting to the children, she's here, she's here, get the children. Now the nightmare begins and death is all around. Part two. 
Evina, help me find the children. They are not wearing the masks. She can see them. Hurry. We must hide. All the children. Quickly. Diarmude, will you gather all of the children by the fires? She doesn't like fire because it will make her stay away. From the fires, Diarmude, by the fires. Children, come to me. Listen to me. You have to stay near the fires. They will keep Lilith away from you. It's the heat she can't stand the heat. Now, run along. Fast. Diarmude, my husband, you are a brave man. Please be careful. Lilith is flying over the village. She is still flying over and looking for the children. And everyone else is running around looking for a place of safety and the masks for their children. But it's too late. Lilith has seen all the children and she wants them. That high-pitched howling is doing its hurting. It's inside of my ears. It's making them bleed. Ebina, Lilith is flying away from the village. The children are safe for now, and she will be back. Lilith, the mother of all demons, will not give up until she has every child. We need to collect more wood and keep the fires going. Diarmude. We have to find out if any children are missing. Lilith kept swooping down upon the children. I ain't too sure she managed to take any. Evina, look at those dark sprites behind you. Run fast and tell everybody to start spreading the sage and salt onto the ground. It will keep them away. Go! Now! Lilith is coming back with more flying demons and dire mute and half of the children are missing. The people who have lost their children have told me that it was the dark spirits that have taken them. The spirits are killing the parents. Diarmude, Lilith is destroying this village. Just take a look at the village. It's on fire. There's nothing left. It's time to leave and take our two daughters to safety. We have to go over to the next village to see what happened to them. Evina. Part 3 Sayeris, where is everyone? Where are the children? Sayeris, the children! Lilith's flying demon and the dark came from nowhere. They took all the children and destroyed the village. Sayeri, what the spirits have done to the rest of the villagers is not normal. These spirits came from an evil dark realm from within the underworld. My daughters, Ruby and Saomen, have been taken. We have to find a way to get everyone else back, especially the children, Evina. Evina, these are the mothers who are left with children. Art, Nora, Ado, and Aof. Also, myself, are the only females left from this village. Between all of us, there are ten children. And with the children, we have saved 23. Listen, it's Lilith. I can hear her wings as she's flying. Did you hear that high-pitched screeching? Children, listen to me. Put your masks on now and run into the forest. Art, look, she's not coming this way. Lilith is flying towards the village of Ecus, which has a large number of people and children. 
Lilith will feast upon them without mercy. Nora and Edo, both of you, are Reiki masters. Will you work together and try to stop Lilith and her dark spirits? Sayeres, we will try. You have to understand that Lilith is the monster of all demons, and a very powerful demon. She is one of the very first demons. Nora, we have to try to take the children to the forest. Lilith can't go into the trees because of her wings, and the dark spirits will not enter the ancient forest because it is a very holy place for pagans. Eov, we have to get in a circle and ask Maka, the goddess, for protection before we go into battle with Lilith and her dark spirits. We can get rid of them, but we cannot destroy Lilith. If we remove the darkness of the spirits, Lilith will fly away. It's the groundwalkers that we have to deal with first. Now, let's ask Maka to join us in battle. Part 4 Druids, you take Saori and cover in the marshlands and lead the groundwalkers into the marshland. Let the flesh eaters feed upon them. Dire Maid, you and I will take the land of the runes to try pushing them back towards druids. We have to stop the dark spirits before they reach the village. Ibina, what about Lilith and her winged demons coming down from the sky? We are going to be attacked from all sides, especially from above. Druids, light the fires and then throw sage and rosemary onto them, which creates more smoke. That will stop Lilith from coming down. This will give us time to kill the Groundwalkers. Nora, have a look over their people from another village who is coming to help in this fight. I'll send them around the battlefield. It's good timing, Sayori. Look, flesh eaters are leaving the marshland. Draw your swords, take their heads, and pray to the gods for daylight to bring an end to this nightmare. Sayaris, Lilith is trying to send her winged demon through the smoke to attack us and look for children. She is just hovering above, waiting for an opportunity. Nora, Lilith can hover as much as she wants. Just listen to the screams of fear and pain from our people caused by Lilith and her dark army. Evina, over here. Dire Maid, thank the god you are alive. I thought you were dead. I'm so happy to see you, my love. I love you so much. When will this night end? Evina, my love, the night is coming to an end. We have killed a lot of Lilith's dark army, but we have lost a lot of people tonight. The flesh eaters have taken their fill on this night. Where are my children? Please tell me if they are safe and alive, dire maid. I can't live without my babies. Look, everyone. It's daylight. It's daylight. We have won against the darkness of Lilith. Part 5 Yes, Art. We have won the fight against Lilith and her dark army. 
but now it is the time to collect and count our dead. Find out how many children are missing, and let's work together to bring the dead to the funeral fires. Art, we have been collecting the dead all day. You have to come and have a look at the rest of them. We can't tell which is which, because there are body parts all over the place. The flesh eaters have eaten and pulled the bodies apart. The hearts and livers are missing. Some of the heads have been ripped off the bodies. The flesh eaters have taken them for trophies. Nora, everywhere I look, it's just dead bodies with parts of them missing. It's as if they were just food for the flesh eaters, the poor souls. They never stood a chance. Nora, the only thing that we managed to do is to keep Lilith's flying winged demons from coming down and taking people away. Art, there's no sign of the children. We are still looking for them. We know that the children are hiding. We have to find out where. With what has been going on tonight, the little ones will be very frightened to come out from hiding. The children will be harding in the ancient forest near their old ruins. The forest is thick with trees, which is why Lilith could not get to them. Do we know how many children are missing? I do know that Lilith has taken some of the children. Let's gather the rest of the villagers so we can discuss what to do and make sure everyone else is safe and well. And stay in one village to another. In the morning, start making plans to go and get the children back from Lilith. Please, tell all of us just how we are going to be able to walk into Lilith's cave without her knowing that we are there. She will kill all of us. Please tell me what you can do to kill the ancient mother of all demons, Lilith. How do we do it? Part 6 Grandfather, what happened in the past with that mother demon called Lilith? And what happened to the people who went into the cave? Who was Lilith, Grandfather? You're asking a lot of questions for a little one. Why do you want to know about the demon Lilith? It is a very long story. It goes back before time itself. And that's where Lilith starts well before humanity even started, my little one. Lilith is the daughter of the One. Now the One is the first god that the human race believed in. Lilith was made from the earth and not from the One, unlike his son Adam, who was made from the earth and brought to life with One's breath. Grandfather, who is the One? We are pagans and have multiple gods to believe in. Is it because they only had one god to believe in, Grandfather? Isabella. In the past, people didn't understand what the sun was. They knew that it gave life, and it was those thoughts that made them believe it was a god. And called the sun, the one, it became their god. This became before any of the religions of today. And now, let me tell you the story of Lilith and where she came from. Lilith was Adam's first wife, and because she was a maid from the One, 
She had taken the freedom of thought and will and would not obey Adam's rules. She had the freedom of choice and willingness to do her own thing. So why should I obey every word? I am not your slave. And she flew off in anger. She sat beside the river, finding peace within herself. And while she was sitting there in peace, the one sent his angels with a message for her to return to Adam and be a dutiful wife and obey. Lilith refused the word of the one and sent a message back to the one that she was a free soul and a mind of her own and a willingness to think and will not obey the word of man. Grandfather, why did Adam and the one want Lilith to obey them? It's not very nice making someone else do things they don't want to do. Is that why she flew away? Yes, my little one. That is why Lilith was feeling sad and lonely. Little one, listen to me. Lilith hasn't always been a demon. She was a very beautiful lady with a loving heart. And yes, she had large wings. That I don't know why, but she has wings. What did the one do to Lilith the next time, Grandfather? Part 7. The Finale What happened next, Isabella? The next thing that the one, Lilith, was sitting on the edge of the cliff, just enjoying the view, and wondering what she was doing with her life now. Lilith heard a deep voice. Lilith, return to your husband and obey his word. Do not refuse me. I'll banish you from this land and take the first hundred of your firstborn children. Obey me, Lilith. You are my daughter. It doesn't matter that you are my father. All you want from me is that I'll obey you and Adam. Why should I obey both of you? What about me and what I want? I don't love Adam. I refuse to stay in a marriage which makes me feel so unhappy. Adam is so demanding and needy. What about my needs? You are taking them away from me just to make your special son happy. No, I don't want to go back to that. Do as you will, father. Where did Lilith go after the argument with her father? Did she fly away, grandfather? Isabella, my little one. Lilith was so upset with her father for not supporting her that she flew off into the desert to be by herself. Lilith wanted more out of life. She wanted to be free to reach out to have a better chance at life for herself. Grandfather, has Lilith ever had children of her own? What did she have, a boy or a girl? Isabella, Lilith did have children. For every hundred firstborn, the one took the life of the child as punishment for disobeying his rule. Isabella, Lilith falls in love with a handsome young man called Lucifer, who offers Lilith great powers, eternal beauty, and immortality. Lilith says yes, and she becomes queen of the night, the mother of all demons. This makes the one 
stopped taking the lives of her firstborn. But Lilith, in vengeance, takes the children from the One, because he created all of the human race. This is why Lilith turned children into demons, and this is why children wear masks to hide from Lilith on this festive night once a year. This is when Lilith comes for her children. It started as most things do, with my bedroom. I was surfing around on YouTube looking for funny videos or scary videos when I stumbled across something that caught my interest. It was run by a user who went by The Meat Man, and it involved stop-motion footage using some very disturbing puppets. The thing that honestly caught my eye first was the thumbnail. It was a figure that appeared to be crafted entirely out of ground meat. I remember seeing the model and lifting an eyebrow as I took in what I was seeing. Now, when I tell you that the models were grotesque, I don't mean that they are ugly or badly made. They were very well put together, and the amount of detail that had gone into them was astonishing. These meat puppets had hair and clothes and facial features that had all been meticulously crafted to the point of being a little uncanny. I would have almost expected them to blink or move on their own, and they seemed too lifelike for the medium. The episode I found was episode 5, and as I watched it, I quickly began to realize that this was no normal bit of YouTube content. Episode 5 involved three characters, Lisa, Steve, and Michael, as they prepared for the arrival of a fourth character, Dawn. The background music was jangly and discordant, somewhere between a calliope and a merry-go-round, and it often made the voices hard to hear. The characters were cleaning up the house, which was mostly a sheet of paper, with windows drawn near the ceiling and some furniture crafted from modeling clay. As they cleaned, a voice told us how Lisa was being lazy and expecting Michael and Steve to do the majority of the work. I remember thinking this was odd because her character moved and dusted and tidied at least as much as the others and they seemed to be working well together. After a few minutes of herky-jerky cleaning, a hand came down from the ceiling and congratulated Stephen Michael on a job well done. It then pointed a pudgy finger at Lisa and scolded her for being so lazy. The boy said that Lisa would not be allowed to join the party later, since she hadn't helped. As Michael and Steve walked off stage... Lisa's character curled into a ball as loud party music played in the background. I remember feeling bad as the last frame sat frozen in place, the camera zooming in on the prostrate Lisa as she sat hunkered against a wall. Though I couldn't hear anything over the loud party music, I could see the small figure shaking a little and thought she might be crying. What the hell was this? And why did it suddenly make me feel almost 
voyeuristic for watching the suffering of this lumpy not-person. After that, my morbid curiosity was hooked. I went to the attached channel and saw that he had about ten videos up, all added within the last month or two. His channel was small, only about 80 subscribers, and they were all in that style of stop-motion where he used the figure's grotesqueness to his advantage. I found the first episode, Friendship, and tried to watch it. The video was about Lisa, the meat puppet from before, and how she was sad and lonely all by herself. The puppet mostly sat in the same familiar position, bent over and appearing to sob. Suddenly, two other familiar puppets, Steve and Michael, came into the scene, and Lisa looked up and seemed happy to see them. The pudgy Han, whom she called Father, said he had seen that she was lonely and had gotten her some friends so she wouldn't cry so much. The Han stroked her delicate hair, and it seemed to be much nicer to her now than it had been in the previous episode I had watched. The three hugged and said that they would be friends forever. Then the episode ended and the screen went black. It had lasted less than five minutes, all told, but it still made me feel strange and put off. Those puppets were so odd-looking and I just couldn't shake the feeling that there was something not right about them. I was also hooked and immediately loaded up the second video. It was like a train wreck, and I needed to see how it came out, no matter what the carnage looked like. The next two episodes were pretty similar to what I had come to expect. They were called Cohabitation and Family, and followed the lives of Lisa and her new roommates. They set up some furniture and had some getting-to-know-you chatter, as wonky music played in the background, making their words hard to hear sometimes. It was the typical stop-motion fare, but there were odd refrains sometimes in the middle of the stop-motion. During one in particular, the boys, Steve and Michael, were talking with Lisa about what to make for dinner. The stop-motion abruptly cut, and you could see five or six seconds of the models just standing as a loud sobbing came from the background. Amidst that sobbing, there was a soft but angry voice trying to quiet the crying. I had to rewind it a few times in order to catch it, and I remember wondering if this was some sort of artistic film or something. Was the artist trying to make some kind of point or something? Maybe he was trying to hide it amidst the stop motion to make it even more avant-garde? It wasn't until the fourth episode that things got bad for Lisa. I noticed that while the first three videos had come out one a day, the fourth video had taken almost a week to come out. This wouldn't have been strange for any other channel, but the total shift from episode three to episode four was alarming. The video was about five minutes long and seemed to entail Lisa going out on her own one night and getting lost. She had gone out for a walk despite being told not to by the father hand.
and had gotten herself lost in a forest that had been drawn on white paper. The trees were the big swampy kind you often saw on kids' art assignments, and it was clear that Father Hand was no artist. He wasn't a consistent narrator either, because his voice and his tone seemed to get angrier the longer the episodes went on. The condition of the puppet looking ghastly, and that only added to the surreal horror of the show. The Lisa puppet was clearly in bad shape, and halfway through the show, a piece fell off of her and landed on the table. The narration ended abruptly as the music continued over the visual of the green puppet just standing in place. The sound of someone stomping off was audible over the jangling discord, and the steps sounded heavy and angry. There was a brief moment where the sound of someone begging to be let go, but it cut away just as the sound of screaming started. The video was edited badly, and an attempt had clearly been made to cut it out. When the show resumed, the Lisa puppet had completed again with what appeared to be a fresh hunk of meat attached. Towards the end of the episode, the Lisa puppet bent over and seemed to weep as she was alone and scared in the forest. This weeping was overlaid by a soft and frantic weeping in the background though I'm not sure we were meant to hear that part. All of a sudden, the father hand came and showed her the way home. It scolded her for running away and told her she must never do that again. Much like an actual father, the hand seemed relieved as well as angry, and Lisa went with him to the house meekly enough. When they returned, the Steve and Michael puppet did not seem happy to see her. They shunned her silently, and the episode ended with Lisa crying in a corner somewhere. Then, the episode faded to black and the credits rolled. I hovered my mouse over episode 6, not sure if I really wanted to watch it. Episode 4, called Thankless, made episode 5 make a lot more sense now. Father Hand was still likely punishing Lisa for running away, though the start of the episode made it very clear that she had just been going on a walk. The episodes were easy enough to follow, but something in them still made me uneasy. Why were these characters living under this fatherly Hand character? Why did the narrator call them roommates if Father Hand treated some of them like children? The whole story just had an odd, surrealist nature to it, and there seemed to be an underlying story that I just wasn't getting. I was invested, though, and had to see how it turned out. Episode 6 was the strangest by far, and the comments on the video seemed to prove that I wasn't just going crazy. It was called Melancholy, and the episode started with the same weird dance music, and a shot of Lisa hunched up and crying. The crying, however, was not the canned sound it had been before. The episode was three and a half minutes of someone sobbing heartbreakingly, the kind of sobs that are equal parts hopelessness and terror. The camera seemed to be slowly panning in on the intricate face of the meat puppet 
as the sobs in the background went on and on. I had seen some strange videos in my time, but this one definitely took the cake. The final shot was of the eye of the meat puppet, clearly defined and lovingly traced. You could see the meat beginning to mold, see the bright splotches that decorated the surface, and just before the screen faded to black, you could hear the elevated terror in the voice of the person sobbing before it was shut off by the end of the episode. I had to take a break after that one, reading the comments as I tried to make sense of what I had just watched. The Meat Man's audience seemed to be a little divided on whether this was an artistic expression or something much darker. A user had said that the sobbing and screaming had been unique and that he couldn't find them on any of the usual free-use sites. Another user questioned whether they were too real or not, thinking this might be part of someone's torture fantasy. But others seemed to think it was just some avant-garde piece that was a little too pompous for its own good. What they did agree on was that even if it was acting, the screams were a little too real and that all of them felt some sort of way about those cries of anguish. I had hoped that maybe Episode 7 would be a return to sanity. But Episode 7, called Jealousy, was just as weird. The narrator was telling us that the Dawn character was adjusting very nicely to the house. All the tenants loved her. They all wanted to be her friend. And indeed, the father hand, Steve and Michael, were all standing around her and moving animatedly. Only one character, Lisa, didn't seem to want to be friends with Don. She seemed to be in another room, still hunkered up and crying. The narrator explained that Lisa was jealous of Don and that father was becoming cross with her attitude. The sobs from the previous episodes were gone, but there were some other low noises barely discernible over the loud jangling music. The puppet seemed to be in a much better condition as well, and I suppose they had changed the meat on them recently. The father hand came and yelled at Lisa some more, but... She just stayed hunkered up and crying. Finally, he left, and the episode ended as the camera zoomed in on the little meat woman, hunkered in her anguish. I looked at the next episode and wondered if I really wanted to see more. It felt like I had been watching for hours, but it turned out that all seven episodes had taken less than 30 minutes. Something about watching the byplay between the characters had gripped me, and I felt that I needed to finish it. At the same time, there was something much darker here than I had expected. This was like someone's confession. The whole thing felt very intimate, and I felt almost voyeuristic just watching. I clicked the next episode, though telling myself that another three episodes wouldn't do too much damage. How wrong I was. Episode 8, called Hatred, opened with Lisa leaning against a paper wall as the others tried to get into her room. They started out nicely, asking her to come out, 
wanting to talk and wanting to see her. The narrator told us that Lisa had been shirking her chores and saying unkind things to Father Han about the other roommates. Father Hand had, of course, shared these things with the others, and now they wanted to talk with her. As their knocks became pounds, all three of them pulling up on the paper door as they banged and kicked. Lisa put her hands to her ears and put her head between her knees. The narrator told us how Michael and Steve wanted to talk with her, and how Dawn was really upset that Lisa would judge her so hastily. As they pounded and banged on the paper door, Father Hand suddenly came into the scene. Lisa looked up from her knees and seemed unsure of what to make of the sudden appearance of the fatherly phalange. Father Hand told her that she had brought discord to the house and that he could no longer ignore her insolence. The hand turned itself into a fist and began to beat the puppet savagely. Chunks of meat fell off and were squashed between the pounding. The wire body was twisted and warped and the whole scene was made all the more horrific by the overlying carnival tune that scratched like razors across my brain. It ended as Steve and Michael knocked and the camera zoomed in on the sad pile of meat that Lisa had become. The episode ended abruptly and when I saw a pale figure staring back at me from the suddenly dark screen, it took me a half second to realize the pale and sweating figure was me. Episode 9, Contrition, was next and there was no question on whether I would watch it or not. I needed to know what came next. Episode 9 was as different from the others as night and day. It was a shaky cam of someone walking through a wood by night. A butter-yellow light provided a small patch of illumination, and whoever was recording was breathing heavily as they trudged through the woods. The woods were preternaturally silent as they went, and the leaves crunching underfoot were loud and jarring. The video was four minutes long, and three and a half minutes were nothing but walking feet crunching leaves and heavy breathing. Then, abruptly, they stopped before a small round stone. The ground before it freshly turned up and put to rest sloppily. Sleep well, Lisa, came a flimmy voice of the cameraman. Then it all went black again. I hit the tenth episode before I could think about it, wanting to see how it ended. Episode 10, Ambivalence, seemed to be a return to normal. Dawn was sitting on the couch, seeming to laugh at something on a TV out of view. Michael and Steve seemed to be milling about, cleaning and just chatting. The wall that had marked Lisa's room was nowhere to be seen. The father hand looked over them benevolently as the narrator told us about Michael looking for a book he had misplaced and Dawn watched her favorite show. All seemed well, all seemed normal, other than the broken corpse of Lisa that lay on the floor. The damage that father hand had done still lay about the ground and the meat was brown and dry. Flies had began to circle the meat body and if one of the puppets had to go near her, they seemed to walk unheading over her body. 
The only character who seemed to notice her was the father hand. He would look down at her from time to time, almost smugly, and shake his head before looking back at the other happy puppets. Episode 10 went dark, and I was yet again left wondering what I had just seen. The video had managed to move into my head rent-free in less time than it would have taken to watch a movie. I had moved on to other videos, other activities, but the images were never far from my mind. I've been known to suggest strange videos to friends of mine, even linking them on Reddit to certain groups. This one, however, was not one of them. I was hesitant to talk about it, let alone tell people about it. I did not want others to suffer under this like I was, and that was probably why I was thinking about it when I saw the poster. I was traveling for work. I work as an expert witness for specific cases, and I do a lot of traveling and a lot of waiting, which often leads to the aforementioned boredom. I was driving through Michigan, when the call of nature became too much to ignore. Luckily, there was a rest stop ahead, and I was zipping up and heading out of the restroom when I saw the missing person's wall. My eyes found the woman before I could stop myself, and my breath caught at my throat as I came up short. The woman's name was Elizabeth Rainey, 23, and she had been missing for the last four months. The poster was new, unmarred by yellowing and creasing, and I pulled it easily from the bulletin board. Looking at her face, I realized how much work must have gone into each puppet. Her nose, her wide forehead, the small dimple in her chin, the dent in her left cheek from some childhood accident. They were all there, and they had all been lovingly added onto the porous face of the meat puppet. I took the poster back to my car, my check-in time approaching quickly, and called a friend of mine who worked at the local police department. I told him about the girl, about the YouTube channel, about the videos, and he said he'd look into it without much enthusiasm. When he called me later that day to thank me for the information, he sounded much, much more interested in what I had to say. I called him again a few weeks later and offered to buy him drinks if he'd sate my curiosity. He was willing, but said I might not want to know as bad as I thought I did. Over drinks, he told me the whole story. My friend had a friend too. His friend was an agent with the FBI, and after watching the videos, my friend had told his friend. He sent him a link to the channel and asked him to take a look. After watching the drama himself, he had tracked the IP and decided to see what they would find out about this guy. Turned out that Elizabeth wasn't the only familiar face that was missing in the Michigan area. Michael Chavez, Stephen Showett, and Don Lee were also missing from the same area. The IP address was coming from an old house near Lake Huron. The owner, David Matthews, owned the house, and quite a lot of acreage out there. When they had raided his house, they had caught David by surprise and found more than they bargained for. He had been keeping them in his basement. The sick bastard had a large finished basement with four separate rooms 
The central room held a couch, a TV, and a large kitchen table with a small set for the show and a camera. The puppets were on the shelf nearby, their bodies gray and sagging off their clothes hanger bodies. The other implement in the room was a large rusty meat grinder. A meat grinder with strains of rotting meat hanging from the spout. He said the flies had been thick in the room and the sounds of moans had not begun until they started kicking down doors. Don, Michael, and Steve were lying in their respective rooms. Most of them, anyway, he had said, taking a long pull from his beer. He sent me the photos of the crime scene. I wish to God he hadn't. David had been in the room that had likely once belonged to Elizabeth. He had been wearing her dress. The fabric badly stretched around his frame and was sobbing in the corner. No matter what the agent said to him, his response was always the same. His rocking making a strange grinding noise as his butt slid over the concrete. He said... I shouldn't have played God. I shouldn't have made her sleep. He just kept saying it again and again and again. The others didn't say much of anything, my friend had told me. He had scooped them to the bone, cutting off fingers and toes and arms and legs so he could grind them up to make their puppets. He'd use tourniquets and animal tranquilizers to keep them alive. Michael and Steve were little more than torsos, Steve having half a leg and Michael little more than an elbow. Dawn was missing her legs, but her arms were thankfully intact. She had only been in the basement for a month, and it seemed like he hadn't had as much time to take from her. They had gotten all of them out of there, and David Matthews, the meat man, was now in custody. A real win for the good guys, my friend had said, his stare a thousand miles long. Though none of them will ever walk again, the men are in a catatonic state and the girl only gibberish, but at least we saved them before he could finish his sick play. They had yet to find Lisa's body, but he told me they hadn't given up yet. As I sit here, going over the facts as I write, it all just runs through my head like a rat in a maze. Every moan, every sob, was the sicko harvesting his victims so he could replace the flesh of his precious puppets. I was an unwilling participant in this, watching and encouraging the sick bastard to continue. I want to forget it, but I can't. I may never forget what I saw in that short hour of my life. I may never forget the terrible knowledge that the meat man has invested in me, and I may find my curiosity sated for quite some time. I think my days of roaming YouTube in my bedroom may be at an end. The dead leaves crunch beneath my boots as they disintegrate into the frost-covered dirt. The winter air is icy cold, and the tips of my fingers sting, even though they're so deeply buried in my pockets. 
The frigid Minnesota climate is a far cry from what I'm used to, way out here in the middle of nowhere. I long for the sweet warmth of home, when we were safe, before I fucked everything up, when things were simple. I love my wife with all of my heart, but even she must have understood on some level that I just needed to blow off steam once in a while. I never brought any of it home to her, not even once. She's my rock. I thought that as long as we were still together that life could go on like it was. But on a winter's day like this, I can't help but wish I'd just up and ran. Left her here in our new world with the neighbors and the kids and the fucking book club without me. I could have left without a word, but I didn't. I couldn't. She had to hear it from me first. Not some asshole cop or a vulturous reporter or on the news. No, she deserves better than that. Our children were at school when I told her about those girls they found buried in the hills. About why we really had to move across the country. She didn't believe me at first. She couldn't. But when she saw it in my eyes that I was telling the truth, that it wasn't just some cruel joke, she wouldn't stop crying. I couldn't bring myself to comfort her. She didn't want me to anyway. Not anymore. So, I left. I left her there to grieve for me. Just the same as if I'd simply abandoned her entirely. I walked for miles, all the way to the nearest town, where I found myself staring up at a church steeple. I sat alone, sequestered on the far end of the shiny wooden pew closest to Christ, nailed to his crimson streaked cross. My eyes met his, and I saw them as unforgiving. I expected nothing less. Wandering back into the street, now growing dark and mostly deserted, I began to walk again to nowhere in particular, into the wilderness. The dusk light shone through the treetops and slivers of golden orange landing on the pale white frost on the forest floor. A large rock amidst a small clearing serves as a comforting place to rest. I shiver and long. Long for L.A., the beach, the sun, the girls. The wind's waning howl is drowned out by police sirens wailing, growing louder and closer. My only regret was bringing her into this, as sweet and innocent as a lamb, now forever ruined by my sick legacy. I hope she believed me when I told her how sorry I was. I really meant it. The gun feels cold against my head. They pulled him from the lake, and they say his skin was as blue as the ice on the lake. They checked his pulse and found him stone-cold dead. They loaded him into a wagon and took him into town the body bouncing like a stone as they rode. Whenever it was that bumping stopped. None of them knew, but when they arrived in town, they found the back of the wagon 
empty. He had our full attention as the tail found its crescendo. They had lost the body somewhere, and when they told the sheriffs he'd made them go back the way they had come and look for it. No matter how much they looked or how far they went, they couldn't find the frozen body and wouldn't until morning. The sound of a chirp crunching against John's teeth sounded very loud in the space, but we all pushed it out of our minds as we listened. The sound of screams would wake the town as Judge Weller awoke to find the frozen body of his latest victim beside him in his bed, and when the police arrived, he gladly confessed to his crimes. Gabriel gasped when the final blow fell, but we shushed him as we listened. He thought of nothing else for the length of his stay in the county jail, likely thought of nothing else right up until the rope ended his life, but the stiff frozen body of Taylor Williams that had found its warmth into his bed. We all sat back, sighing contentedly, as we clapped softly. That's a good one, Craig, I said, nodding appreciatively as the others congratulated him. It was Halloween, and as it was Craig's turn to host the Halloween sleepover, he had been allowed to tell the first story. One of many, I was sure, would be shared that night. Craig, Gabriel, John, and I had been friends since kindergarten. Our town isn't very big, maybe 25,000 people tops. And when we realized we only lived a few streets away from each other, it was a done deal that we would be friends for life. We spent our days riding bikes or playing video games or just enjoying each other's company and we didn't see an end to those days anytime soon. As we got older, however, Craig and I developed what you might call a bit of a rivalry. Whether it was video games, Pokemon cards, bike races, or whatever we did, the two of us had to be the best in our friend group. We would do anything for each other, but it was accepted that our competitions often put us at odds. I was often the one to come out on top in these contestants, and as such Craig had begun to take them kind of seriously. Any opportunity to be the winner was a chance he took, so when he looked at me to follow his story with something better, I was ready and waiting. Well, this is one my dad told me about, and it gave me the chills. They say there's a guy who walks around Carter May Park after dark. He wears a hooded sweatshirt, and no one has seen his face and lived to describe it. He told me that everyone called the guy Mr. Toothman, and he was a local legend of sorts. Lots of people had seen him, but no one had ever gotten close enough to talk to him or see his face. Craig pretended to yawn and the others were enthralled. Gabriel was laying on his stomach, his eyes getting big as he balanced on my hand, and John was nodding his head as he sat with his mouth a little open. I could see the Jolly Rancher he had been about to cradle in his cheek as it threatened to slip out, but he seemed not to realize he was about to lose some of his hard-won candy on the carpet. Well... My dad and his friends decided that they wanted to be the first to see what this elusive Mr. Toothman looked like. So they went to the park after dark and camped out near a spot 
he was said to stop at. Someone at school had told him that Mr. Toothman would stop and feed the bird just after sunset by the little fountain. And, as they hid in a bush and waited for sunset, they all told stories of what he might look like. I bet he looks like a bat with long pointy teeth and drool coming out of his mouth, said Dad's friend Randy. Craig tried to roll his eyes, but he was clearly as interested as the rest of my friends. None of them had heard the story before. None of them had any idea of a legendary creature that stalked the park. They had never heard of it, because I had never told it, and it was something I had been saving for tonight. I bet he looks like an alligator and his face barely fits inside the hood, said Teddy. Dad didn't speculate with them. He just kept watching the bench. It got darker and darker. The bugs tuning up as the crickets and nightbirds began their songs. He was supposed to show up right after dusk. They had been told so already, and they believed it. But he still wasn't there, and the mosquitoes were beginning to bite. A dog barked outside, but none of them took notice. They were all too enthralled by the story to give it a thought. I bet he looks like a monster from under the bed, Teddy said suddenly. And when he gets you, he drags you into the dark and swallows you whole. I bet, said a cold deep voice, that he gobbles up naughty children who are out past their bedtime. They turned and there he was. His hood was down. But Dad said he couldn't see his face in the gloom. All three went tearing off as fast as they could. The tooth man right behind them. They ran for home as fast as they were able to. His running steps right behind them. Dad said he was making a weird sucking noise, like he was trying to stop from drooling at the sight of such tasty flesh. They ran and ran. And when they got to Teddy's house, which was closer, they discovered that he wasn't with them. Gabriel gasped, but it was pretty expected. They told his parents that the tooth man had gotten him, but they never really believed them. The police were called, and when the boys told them that the tooth man had gotten Teddy, they didn't believe them either. The park was searched, but nothing was ever found. Teddy remains missing to this day, and you can still see the tooth man walking in the park sometimes. They say he still sits on the bench, feeding the night birds, waiting for his next victim to come wandering by. As I finished, the others clapped softly, telling me that it really had been a great story. All but Craig, of course. Yeah, it was okay, kind of believable. Despite your best efforts, though. Oh, <laughs> it's real. I shot back as I grabbed some candy from my nearby bag. My dad said he was there. His friend Teddy was never seen again, and his other friend Randy moved away a few months later. His parents were afraid he might go missing, too, and they sold their house and got the hell out of town. Craig made a disbelieving noise. <laughs> oh, come on. Like anyone would buy that. You made it all up. Just admit it. I glowered at him, 
my candy still half unrolled. Are you calling my dad a liar? Because he wouldn't lie to me about anything like that. All right, then, Craig said, grinning. Prove it. I looked at him skeptically. Uh, how? Let's all go to Center May Park right now. It's right down the road from here, like a ten-minute walk. It's already nine o'clock, so this tooth man should be there. We can see him and get home before my mom wakes up and comes to check on us. I started to decline, but why shouldn't we go? Never mind that we were four 12-year-olds who were talking about going out well after dark. Never mind that we were children who were talking about going to find a creature that snatched children. It was Halloween, and tonight anything was possible. Why wouldn't we go to the park and catch a glimpse of a real-life monster? Tonight was the night for seeing monsters, wasn't it? All right, Craig. Let's go. Let's go have a look, then. He started to look a little skeptical, but then I crossed my arms and delivered the final blow. Oh, come on now. You aren't chicken, are you? That sealed it, and about five minutes later... We were slipping out of his garage and making our way down the sidewalk. The streets were empty, the kids inside asleep or counting their candies, and we had the world to ourselves, it seemed. The odd car rolled by to break that illusion now and then, but our only company on the walk was the scuttle of trash or the flap of a bat in the slight wind. It was quiet the night just beginning to stretch its fingers across town. And as the moon hung high and pregnant over top of us, it seemed that anything really could be possible. The park was lit by intermittent light poles, and the islands of light were welcome reprieves in the murky blackness. We couldn't see the hay sculptures that the town had erected in the park, Remnants of its Halloween event earlier that week, and they seemed monstrous in the quiet night. The playground was still covered in thick fake spider webs that the town had put there, and it all seemed very spooky to four kids out past curfew. We heard the fountain before we came upon it. It was sitting in an intersection of three light poles, and they cast an eerie light across the everlapping surface of the water. Coins gleam within the belly of that fountain. We had all glimpsed them greedily from time to time. As we got closer, we stopped at the sight of someone sitting on the edge of the fountain. He was hunched over, his chin against the back of his hand, and we crouched down as we tried to hide from him. My heart beat a little faster as my eyes bore into him. Was this the tooth man my father had told us about? No way, Gabriel breathed, slouching behind a shrub as we stared at the man on the edge of the fountain. I guess you weren't making it up. I told you my dad wasn't a liar, I said. We stood there watching for a few moments, the fountain the only noise to be heard before Craig said, Well, go see what he looks like then. I blinked. What? Go see what he looks like. If he's a monster, then we'll be the first ones to see his face. John and Gabriel nodded, liking the sound of this. 
Yeah, John chimed in. Otherwise, how do we know it's not just a homeless guy or something? You ever seen a homeless guy around here? I shot back, but Craig wouldn't be discouraged. I tried to reason with them, but in the end, they wouldn't be swayed. So I started out from the shrub we had crouched behind as slowly and quietly as I could. There was really no way to sneak up on him. The walkway is a straight shot to the fountain, and the figure was sitting on the rim of said fountain. He was going to see me, no matter how I approached, so I just figured I'd move straight towards him. If it was the tooth man, I would have plenty of chances to see him and run. If it wasn't him, they would let me know, and I could feel silly about creeping up on someone in the middle of the night. The closer I got, however, the more my hackles went up. The guy wasn't moving, wasn't even breathing, and the closer I got, the more the tension rose. I began to expect him to spring up and grab me, to leap up and run at me, and as 20 feet became 10 feet, I could hear my teeth chattering. He just sat there, just leaned against his hand, and I wondered if he was just trying to lure me in. I could see his hoodie now, the dark fabric covering the face, and I just knew that beneath it there would be rows of teeth or a slobbering mouth or bug eyes or... Hello? Are you okay? I asked, reaching out to touch his arm. I expected to be grabbed. I expected to be devoured. I did not expect him to fall backwards into the fountain with a loud splash. As Straw rose around his still unmoving form, I began to understand... As my friends ran up, asking what had happened, I realized that it had been a scarecrow the whole time. In fact, I could see a second one sitting on the other side of the fountain. My friends laughed as they saw it too, and we all felt silly about being scared of a dumb old scarecrow. Craig was laughing. The tension was gone, and I remember thinking how nice it was to see him just enjoying being my friend again. No rivalry, no challenge just playing like we used to. When I saw something over his shoulder, however, I felt some of the mirth run out of my mouth. Sitting on the bench across from the fountain, about ten feet from our little group, was another figure sitting on a park bench. There was a bag in its hand, popcorn or seeds, and it appeared to be feeding the birds. It wasn't moving. It didn't even appear to be breathing. And it, too, was dressed in a black hoodie and ratty jeans. The shadowy hood was facing towards us, and the depths were dark enough that I couldn't make out anything within. Craig seemed to grasp that I was looking past him, and then he turned around and I heard him chuckle. <laughs> Man, these things are everywhere. They probably won't mind if we push them over, right? They're just hay, and they're probably just going to throw them out. <laughs> I wanted to stop him as he walked towards it, but John and Gabriel were already going to shove the other scarecrows in as it sat on the other side of the fountain. They thought I had done it on purpose, thought I had realized it wasn't real as I came up, and they wanted some Halloween mischief too. The tension was gone. It was all fun and games again and I was the only one to see Craig as he approached the bench. 
They look so real. I heard him half whisper. I could almost believe it was. The thing reached up and grabbed him just as the other scarecrow went into the fountain, and his screams of panic were lost amidst the splash. The hand holding the bag let it drop to the ground, and as Craig tried to pull away, I saw it rise slowly towards the hood. My other friends hadn't noticed yet. They were still too busy with the scarecrow that they had pushed into the fountain, and as much as I wanted to move my feet, I was frozen to the sidewalk. Craig was begging for help, screaming for his mother, and as the hood came down, I joined my scream of terror to his. They had named him Apley. His head was bald and pink, like a blobfish we had made fun of in science class the year before. Ugh. His nose was thick and squashy, and his eyes were like little pits in his oddly shaped face. His mouth took up the majority of that face, and it was horrible enough to make up for the rest. His teeth were like sewing needles, a double row of sharp, steely gray fangs, and when he opened his jaws, it looked like he could just swallow Craig whole. Craig stopped screaming when that mouth fell over his face, and that was when John and Gabriel figured out that something else was going on. We ran like frightened rabbits, our minds commanding us to get as far from danger as possible, and I'm ashamed to say that we left Craig there. There was nothing we could do for him anyway. Craig's mom answered the door after about five minutes of pounding and screaming. She came fully awake as we started trying to tell her what had happened. The cops came in a hurry when she called them, and we took them to the spot where he had been attacked. There was no sign of Craig or the man, but there was enough blood to prove that something had happened over there. It stained the pavement and bench, and the city would spend days afterward trying to get it off. We were all taken to the station so we could give our statement, and when I told them that my dad had told me the story about the tooth man, they brought him in too. Dad was still in his pajamas pale and scared and unsure of what the hell was going on. And he hugged me when he saw me. He and my mom had been in the lobby of the police station for a while, and they had told them very little about what had happened. They were worried about that I had been hurt or even killed, and seeing me sent relief washing through them. That relief was smothered when I told him that we had seen the tooth man. What? <laughs> What? The Tooth Man, I reiterated. The one from your story. The one who took Teddy, remember? Dad looked confused. That's impossible, kiddo. No, I said. We saw him. He had a black hoodie that covered his face. He was on the bench beside the fountain. Craig thought it was a scarecrow and he went to go push him over. And that's when it got him. It's the Tooth Man. You told me about him. You said... It was a story, buddy. He said, looking at the police as if begging them to believe him. I made it up. I never had a friend go missing. I just made up a scary story to tell you. There's no such thing as the Tooth Man. The police let us go not long after, but I think about that Halloween a lot. 
especially around this time of year. Turns out that Craig had been right all along. My dad had been a liar. My dad had made up a story, a story I told my friends. And if I hadn't told it, then we would never have been in the park that night. No one knows who or what took Craig. But, like the Randy from his story, his family moved away not long after. Other people have reported seeing a man in a black hoodie in the park at night, but the police have never been able to substantiate it. The park mostly stays empty now, and the people who use it are the kind who don't like to be disturbed. It's not a park you take your kids to anymore, and the town built a shiny new park not long after the incident. So, if you see a man walking at night in a black hooded sweatshirt, steer clear of him. You never know when you might find yourself staring into the toothy maw of the Tooth Man. I used to believe that miracles were nothing but fairy tales once upon a time. When I was just a young nurse starting my career at the Sunshine Children's Ward. On the Sunshine Ward, we dealt with both very sick and terminal children. And let me tell you this. Those kids were far braver than I ever would have been in their shoes. One in particular was a young girl named Julie. She had been born with Down Syndrome and didn't talk verbally, but communicated through drawing instead. The poor thing had been given a terminal cancer diagnosis at the age of just 10 years old. Yet, she continued to smile. I almost broke down in front of her when I looked at her Crayola drawings. And one she had herself as a smiling angel floating up into the clouds. And in another, she had drawn her parents looking sad as they stood beside an empty bed. I interpreted it as her own way of saying goodbye to her parents, letting them know that everything was going to be okay. Julie's health seriously declined over the next month, to a point in which she was emaciated and struggling to breathe. The cancer had spread to her lungs, causing her to continually cough up blood. It was the first time I had ever seen her look that frightened. It was too much for me. I had to leave the room to cry. As I stood outside her room sobbing, a man who I had never seen approached me suddenly and startled me. The kind, podgy-faced man held out a tissue. Dry those eyes, for today is no day for tears, he said warmly. I don't know what it was about that man. There was just something odd about him but definitely not in a bad way. He then turned away without another word and entered Julie's room. Wait, wait, you can't go in there, I shouted. He didn't listen, and the door slammed shut behind him. When I tried to open the door, it was like the force of a thousand men pressing against it, stopping me from entering. Somebody get security, I screamed. By the time security arrived, the door finally opened. A sickly, pale, emaciated man crawled outside, grunting in pain and vomiting blood. 
It was the same man from just minutes prior, only he looked much different, like he was at death's door. As blood pooled from his mouth, he looked up at me, and with the last of his strength he smiled before succumbing to death. To mine and everybody's surprise, Julie came walking out of the room breathing normally, no longer looking pale and thin, but vibrant and healthy. And as if things were not strange enough, she could now speak for the first time in her life. Mr. Miracle said I didn't have to die today, she said. Not a day goes by when I don't think about that day. The day I discovered that miracles really do exist. The worst part of being in prison for me was not being able to see my son, Toby. I missed him so much. He had sent me a letter, and it left me deeply concerned. I would do anything to be outside the thick walls surrounding me, to be with him. No mother should have to be away from her child, though it was far beyond my control. A picture of Toby hung on the wall of my cell. I looked up at it occasionally as I read his short letter over and over, causing the ink to smudge from my tears. To Sylvia White, prisoner number 464, sender Toby White. Hello, Mommy. I really miss you. When am I going to see you? It is lonely here and very cold, and I have not seen any light, only dark now. My baby needed help. What kind of nightmare was he in? What did he mean by only dark greets me now? I wanted answers. I told one of the wardens about the letter and he just shrugged it off like it was nothing. Like my child didn't matter and everybody else I told did nothing to help either. That night, alone in my cell, I wrote to Toby. To Toby White, sender. Sylvia White, prisoner number 464. What did you mean in the letter you sent me? Where are you? Whatever trouble you are in, Mommy will help you. I miss you so much. It was three days before I got a reply. Three agonizingly long days of worrying about my son. When I saw the envelope with Toby's handwriting on it, I felt a slight bit of relief. To Sylvia White, prisoner number 464, sender Toby White. I am in a very cold, dark place. My blood has turned to ice, and when I lick it, it tastes like a metal popsicle. You should come see me. There is enough popsicle for us both. My whole body is like a popsicle. <laughs> come to hell and join me. I broke down in tears after reading the letter. Something was wrong with my boy. I took the letter to one of the wardens again, this time with determination to make them help me. I would starve myself to death if I had to. I approached the warden with the letter in my hand. My boy, he's in trouble. You, you have to send someone to help him. I'm begging you, I said holding the letter up. The warden didn't help. 
He pushed me aside and gave me a very angry look before getting right up in my face. And with a quiet yet rage-filled tone, he said, Listen, bitch, you know Toby is dead, and you know damn well that you killed him. You cut the poor boy to pieces and hid him in two separate freezers, and I cannot wait to hear about the day you fucking die. Now, get out of my face and go find somewhere to rot. As cliche as it sounds, I was absolutely born to kill. There are simply no two ways about it. My brain wiring just ain't right. You know what I mean? Hmm. I'm so fucking addicted to killing people and playing around with their insides. <laughs> like a... <laughs> like a child in a sand pit. Women are my preference. Particularly prostitutes, as they are for many serial killers. But in all honesty, I take great pleasure in killing anyone, to be fair. But there is something special about the ladies of the night. There are those with dark intentions, what a gazelle is to a hungry lion. Easy prey. My first victim, a prostitute by the name of Maureen, had told me she was 42 but she actually looked to be in her mid-fifties. Anyway, I opened her up with my blade, then fondled with her kidneys in my hands. After I was done, I went to clean myself up, and this is where I noticed something odd. As I looked in the mirror, there was a middle-aged woman standing behind me. She looked just like that dead sack of mutton in my living room. I turned around, but nobody was there. I turned to the mirror again. There she was, watching me with those sad, blank eyes. She never left, not even weeks after her body had been disposed of. She wasn't just in the mirrors, either. She appeared on any reflective surface, always silent, always watching. To make myself feel better, I decided to kill two people to really treat myself and take my mind off things. Yep, mm, that was a bad idea. I didn't catch their names, but boy did the fat one squeal like a pig while fighting against the restraints. Anyone would think that she wasn't enjoying herself. But she soon shut up after I stuck a Stanley blade into her throat. When I woke up the next morning and looked into the mirror, there was now three women standing there, the two from the previous night, along with Maureen standing behind them. Go away! I yelled. They didn't listen. I couldn't even look at my phone without seeing them peering back at me. They were following me, watching me from everywhere. Foolishly, I decided to ignore it, to carry on with my life as normal. After all, we all go a little crazy sometimes, as Norman Bates would say. It's been years now, and in that time I never stopped killing. I couldn't. Seeing life leave somebody's eyes is, to me, what heroin is to a junkie. I just cannot function properly without my Fix. 
I lost count how many it has been since Marine. Uh, <laughs> I stopped counting at around the 70 mark or something like that. But now, I cannot even see my own reflection in the mirror through all of the sad dead faces surrounding me. I really should stop killing people. Malcolm's room was certainly no environment in which one remained healthy for too long. In the far corner was an aromatic pile of fecal matter, which was almost as tall as the ceiling. Quite literally a mountain of shit. It was his offerings to the Lord of Flies, whose divine presence graced him with thousands of his legion buzzing around the room and his head. There were voices in the buzzing of those flies, whispering little secrets into his ear. Mommy's going to send you back to the funny farm. Of course, he had expected as much. The voices only served to confirm his suspicions. The old cunt was going to send him back to that horrible hospital. Three flies danced beside his ear. What are you going to do about it? Malcolm paused and thought for a long while before the flies helped his slow mind along. Smother her. Malcolm again paused in long thought as he pondered the decision as best as he could. His main concern was whether he would be able to overpower his mother. She's 72, Malcolm. Are you telling me you can't smother that old bag of shit? They were right. Malcolm had eaten his vegetables. He was a strong boy, the biggest in his class back in 1983, though it never stopped him being bullied. Yeah, yeah, you're a strong boy. Now go and kill that bitch. Filled with newfound confidence, he was absolutely ready to go. But first, he needed to take a shit. A nice big fat steamy one. He opened his bowels for the Lord of Flies and shat out his offering. The flies buzzed around excitedly. That one is your best masterpiece yet. And it was. It truly was. It flowed from his anus like the most perfect chocolate whippy. He almost wanted to put a little cherry on top. Malcolm walked out of his room with a pillow in his hand, feeling emboldened. This time, he was going to do it. He could feel it in his bones. He approached his sleeping mother as she snored loudly in her bed, then hovered the pillow over her head. A fly buzzed near his ear. Do it. He pressed the pillow down onto her face with all of his strength, pushing so hard that he felt like he was going to crush her. But unfortunately, this wasn't actually the case. With one solid movement, his mother threw him onto the floor, then proceeded to grab her belt to deliver the most almighty beating Malcolm had ever received. What have I told you, Malcolm? She wailed on him with the buckle end of the belt. You're going to learn one of these days, boy. Two more lashings connecting with Malcolm's head. Now... Get back to your room. 
I'm calling the doctor. Malcolm went back all bloody and bruised to his room in defeat. The flies buzzed around his head, but he ignored their mocking jokes. Out of jail, I resumed my search for the empty box. The box had taken both my mother and my father and my best friend. When I found it, I planned to destroy it and set them free. It had all started with a package delivered to our front porch. It seemed that everyone got packages delivered to their front porch. There is only one such package that mails itself. While I was in jail, I received a letter. My lawyer had brought it to me, and I had accepted it, as it was slid across the table. I read the letter from a certain relative of a certain billionaire who owns one of the largest package delivery systems ever created. The letter detailed how it had all started with a deal made with something from the depths of time. It was a creature that hungered for human suffering, and the sort of suffering it craved was to trap people, body, and soul in its own world. It was the abyss of eternal darkness and Abalon, and to look into a shadow cast by it was to be drawn into it, forever trapped. That is, unless the box were to be shown the light of the unseeing eye, a kind of spell that made a candle flame burn for a moment with heavenly light. That would dissipate the shadow and release all those trapped within. I had memorized the spell of the candle flame, and then the letter was taken away. My lawyer died two days later, having ended up in the hospital with alcohol poisoning. There was no way to get the letter after that, no way to find it, not before it was destroyed along with many other documents. It did not matter. I had memorized the most important part and learned the truth about the empty box. I had hunted for it in vain before, and if I found it, I too would have fallen victim to it. It arrives like any package delivery, sent from somewhere that sounds familiar, an address to the owner of the address, the recipient. The empty box feels like it sounds, entirely hollow, like there is nothing inside. When it is opened, there is darkness. I heard my mother say once, it is just an empty box, and then the darkness engulfed her and drew her into it. The box seemed almost shut, and my father, although terrified, opened it and looked inside. He, too, was drawn into it, wrapped in the darkness. I felt terrible fear and sweating, and my heart seemed to have stopped beating. The sweat on my body felt freezing, as though the heat were drawn into it. The cold air made me shudder as I stared in disbelief at the empty box, just sitting there. For a moment, I thought I could hear the screams of hundreds of people echoing quietly from within the empty box. That is when my best friend, Ludicious, came out of our kitchen. Where are your parents? she asked. She sounded tough and fearless. I felt weak and small, terrified. I pointed at the box. 
No, wait, I told Ludicious, but she wasn't afraid of anything. They're in the box? She asked incredulously. <gasps> yes. I gasped in horror, realizing moment by moment what had happened. I did not understand yet what the box had done. I had seen it, but I could not comprehend it. That is when Ludicious opened the empty box, and it took her too. I screamed and fell out of my seat. I scrambled away from it and crawled as fast as I could outside. For a day, I lost my mind, wandering and babbling incoherently. When the police arrested me for loitering, I was seen by a psychiatrist, and they took a blood sample to determine if I might be on drugs. Eventually, I was released, but not before I gave a statement to the police about what had happened with the empty box. When I went home, the empty box was gone. I spent days feeling deranged, worried about my own mental health. What had happened was real, and there was no way to prove it. The best people in my life are gone, taken by the empty box. It was then that I was walking, wandering down the street, when I saw a package delivered to someone's porch. I stood and watched with trepidation, sensing somehow that the empty box was nearby. I could not be sure, but the closer I got, the more I felt it. could almost hear the sounds of those who were trapped inside. That is what I thought. So, I began to wander around searching for it. Whenever I saw a package upon someone's porch, I would run up and shake it to make sure it wasn't empty. I didn't find the empty box again. I kept getting into trouble. People caught me on camera, and there were barking dogs and threats with guns and all sorts of trouble. People don't appreciate porch pirates, and that is what I had become, because nobody believed me. Then, one day, I was arrested for my trespasses and suspicion of theft. I was charged with numerous counts of porch piracy, none of which I was guilty, for I had never stolen any packages. It did not matter. I spent 11 months in jail. While I was there, I told my story to my lawyer, who seemed to believe me. My lawyer wrote to the owner of the package delivery company, asking for a resolution to my claims. Neither of us expected a reply, but it was worth the effort, because there is no telling when a billionaire might turn out to be someone who will help someone like me. The letter reached someone who knew the truth and decided to write back, offering to help by telling me how to undo the curse. When I was finally out of jail, I resumed my quest. I became much craftier at searching for the elusive empty box, and I got a job working for a delivery company. With my own truck and uniform, it became much easier to search people's front porch packages Anyone who caught me didn't think anything unusual was happening. They just presumed I had business on their porch lifting and shaking their package and then replacing it where I had found it. I am still searching for the empty box, and when I find it, I will cast the spell of the candle flame upon it. I will destroy the evil that melds itself from one home to another 
destroying families unknown to the rest of the world. Not all missing people will stay missing forever. Some of them are going to come back someday, on the day when I find the empty box. One night, me and my co-workers decided to play with a Ouija board outside of work. We talked to a girl named Quinn, who said she was a demon. She seemed pretty cool, till towards the end of talking to her, we decided we needed to head home, because it was like 2 a.m., but she wouldn't let us say goodbye, until we promised that if we ever used the Ouija board again, that we would talk to her. About a week later, the place where we worked caught on fire. So, a few days after that, we go to the lake and use the Ouija board again and ask for Quinn. We ask if she started the fire, and she told us that she did. Then, it seemed like Quinn got scared or overpowered, because the board started acting up, spelled Zozo, and started counting backwards. We quickly said goodbye and moved the planchette to goodbye. About two weeks later, I was driving to my friend's house. I should mention that the friend was a girl I was seeing at the time, and she was cheating and using me. I did not know this at the time. I guess Quinn knew because she seemed mad, protecting, and jealous when me and my friends mentioned this girl's name. The first time we used the Ouija board. So, on the way to her house, I had hydroplaned and flipped my truck. I had to add the Ouija board is in the truck. Some people driving down the road stopped to help get the door open, and I climbed up and out. When the cops arrived, they made sure I was okay and said they had to write me a ticket just because of the accident. I don't have the ticket anymore because this happened about four years ago, but the address site of the accident was Route 666 in Virginia. That wasn't so difficult, was it? Your wish has been granted, and you are now able to live as you see fit. Of course, this ritual has been of no small cost to myself, so I'll be leaving you this handy note to explain all of the new stipulations I've added to cover the cost, and how to avoid them. Good luck. Day Rules you should be safe enough during the day. None of the friends I borrowed from are brave enough to come out while the sun is on the horizon, so you should be fine. Rule number one. Try to stay in groups of three or more. While they prefer to come out at night, that doesn't mean they can't come out during the day. Rule 1A. Occasionally, anybody you know and are close with can become compromised. This isn't a major issue, but you do need to know how to deal with it. Look for any deformities that wouldn't necessarily be obvious at first glance, such as new jewelry or an eye color change. Rule 1B. If you notice a friend has potentially been replaced, you need not worry. 
simply separate from that person as soon as reasonably possible and return home. They will not harm you in the presence of others, but staying near them will make it easier for them to track you. When you get home, lock all of your doors and go to your room for the remainder of the day and leave as little as possible. Rule number two, don't gamble or play any games that have the potential for gambling. It may remind them of what I've, <coughs> excuse me, it may remind them of what you've taken from them. Rule number three, stay cautious, use common sense and be aware. There are the most common scenarios, but they aren't the only possible occurrences. I can't cover everything, so if something seems suspicious, stay away from it. Night rules. Generally speaking, the lack of light makes it easier for any bad actors to cross over to the mortal plane. Apply any rules from the daytime set to be safe. Rule number one. Between the hours of 3 a.m. to 3.59 a.m., you will sacrifice any warm-blooded, medium-sized, or above creature to me at least once a month. Although I wouldn't mind more. Replenishing my power after such a deal won't be easy, after all. Rule number two. Starting at roughly 12 a.m. and ending at around 7 a.m., it is very important that you block off all entrances to the room that you are sleeping in. As such, it is recommended that you avoid rooms without doors. Rule number three. Use a large weighted blanket when you sleep. Occasionally, a gust of wind may be sent through your room. The thing creating the wind is something that you really want to stay away from. Due to the limited connection to your world, without a direct line of sight, it is near impossible for it to notice you. Rule number four. Ignore whispering that doesn't belong to you, especially if it mentions anything of an unpaid debt. They are searching for you, and even acknowledging the sound they make can be dangerous. Rule number five. Nobody should ever appear at your house at any time for any reason, asking for me by name. If this does happen, it doesn't particularly matter if you open the door or not. You do not have long to act, though. Lock everything in your house that can be locked. This should clearly signal that they are not invited or welcomed. Now, pray that they accept your rude dismissal. Rule number six. Keep all religious paraphernalia out of your house. I like to watch you struggle. Admittedly, I did use outside forces to gain the power to grant you the wish, and admittedly, I wasn't necessarily given permission to use said power. But what did you expect? You made a deal with a demon. I do need to pay off my debt. Unfortunately, and your soul is the easiest way. I now own it, as discussed, and the minute you pass, I am in the clear. Make no mistake. I only created this list out of obligation. You will die, and you will die soon. And when you do, I will be there to claim my prize.
Alrighty, dear listeners, this brings a close to Friday the 13th, Part 1. If you are sleeping, I hope Slumberland is treating you kindly. If you are awake, I hope you've enjoyed this collection. Stay tuned for the next ones. In the meantime, please take care of yourselves. I'll be reading to you soon. Have yourself a good morning, a good afternoon, or good evening. Peace, love, and light to you all.